A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a slave above his master. It is enough for the disciple that he become like his teacher, and the slave like his master. If they have called the head of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they malign the members of his household? And that was Matthew 10, 24-25. You may be seated. This sermon this morning is entitled, We Shall Be Called Beelzebub. In a nation founded on the Christian faith, I think it is very difficult for many of us to really understand this morning's text. To be honest, Jesus' words might sound a bit strange to many of us. Many Christians in America have never been persecuted for our faith. To the degree at least described in Matthew 10. We have churches all over our nation. We have Christian chaplains installed in our military and our Senate. Our leaders still take the oath of office on a Bible. And even our money has in God we trust inscribed on them. Although there is a rise of unbelievers in America, America nevertheless remains the largest Protestant nation in the world to the glory of God. So again, the type of persecution described in Matthew 10 does not make sense for so many of us. Last week, Jesus warned us that we will be forced to go to trial, to stand before Gentile rulers for the name of Jesus. In America, however, we rarely see that occur. To confuse us further... Many of us here have no clue as to what the word Beelzebul means in verse 25. Just what exactly is a Beelzebul? And why would anyone call Jesus by that name or His followers? Hence, today's text requires some extensive historical context. Not all passages do, but this one does in order for us to fully appreciate the words of Christ. Back in 1998, Christianity Today ran an issue entitled, Converting the Empire, Early Church Evangelism. In it, there was an informative article entitled, Defending the Cannibals. And here is an excerpt from the piece. Christianity faced opposition from its very inception. Its founders were killed, I'm sorry, its founder was killed, and its first major, major missionaries were martyred. But as Christianity spread beyond Judea, the nature of the criticisms changed. Rather than opposing Jesus' teachings, most attacks against Christianity arose from ignorance and fear. Frequently, critics had little, if any, first-hand experience with Christians, their worship, or their beliefs. So for the first two centuries, at least, attacks tended to restate stereotypes, stock objections, and misconceptions circulating throughout the pagan world. 
If we examine the main charges and how Christians responded, we'll discover why Christianity could not easily be dismissed in the ancient world. In his lives of Caesars, Suetonius, a Roman writer and secretary to Emperor Hadrian, was among the first pagan writers to mention Christianity. But the context was hardly positive. Believers are mentioned only as, quote, a class of men given to a new and mischievous superstition. The charge of superstition was perhaps the most serious and most common pagan accusation. The comment was repeated by Tacitus, the famous Roman historian, in his account of burning Rome. He acknowledged that Nero fabricated the accusations that Christians started the fire, but he held little sympathy for the notoriously depraved believers, as he called them. He writes, Their originator, Christ, had been executed in Tiberius' reign by the governor of Judea, Pontius Pilatus, he wrote. But in spite of this temporary setback, This deadly superstition had broken out not only in Judea where the mischief had started, but even in Rome. All degraded and shameful practices collect and flourish in that capital. Now Pliny the Younger, a Roman official sent to the province of Bithynia in what is now northern Turkey, In about the year 110, so you're talking only a few years after the death of the Apostle John, shared the same sentiments. Although Pliny had extensive governmental experience, he had never been involved in a trial involving Christians. So when it came to question, uh, when it came time to question some of them, he wrote to the Emperor Trajan for advice. And here's the quote. I do not know what crime is usually punished or investigated, or to what extent. So he was uncertain whether or not those admitting to be Christians should be punished, or if they had to be charged with some crime as well. Meanwhile, he asked the accused if they were Christians. To those who confessed, he asked a second and a third time. When even after threatening punishment, they still confess to be Christians, Pliny ordered that they be punished. Why? Here's what he writes. For I did not doubt that whatever it was they admitted, because they couldn't find a crime, obstinacy and unbending perversity certainly deserve to be punished. End quote. So according to that article, even if Christians were not accused of any real substantive crime, government officials like Pliny the Younger punished them anyway for simply continuing to confess Christ while under the threat of punishment. They believed that such stubbornness should be punished. That type of unwavering faith is what Jesus said in verse 22, if endured till the end, would receive a reward. Unfortunately, by the Romans and their officials, it was seen as perverse and punished by those in power. 
For early Christians within the early centuries after Jesus, reading Matthew 10 must have been like reading a page from the newspaper. Everything he warned happened. People were persecuted, thrown to bears and lions. Christians were tied up and lit up, put on fire and used as lamps. They didn't have electricity in those days. Christians were persecuted left and right. And I'll come back to that later in this message. But for now, have to establish some context for Matthew 10. Because I don't think we understand what that sort of persecution was like. Unless you hear what I just shared with you. But pause that for now and let's go to verse 25. What exactly is a Beelzebub? And why would anyone call Jesus by that name? A Cambridge um, Bible for schools and colleges says this, Beelzebub, or Baalzebub, meant Lord of the Flies. In fact, I think uh, the famous book that many of you had to read while you were were in school is a spin-off of this name. Or avert of flies. Apparently flies were a serious plague in hot countries. Beelzebub was the name of a god of the Philistines. Remember Goliath? His people. They had a god whose name was Beelzebub. And he was the one who had the power to get rid of flies. He was the lord of the flies. And uh, so what the Jews did by changing one letter... They threw contempt on the God of their enemies and called him Baal-Zebel instead of Beelzebub, Lord of the Flies. What what is the slight change caused his name to mean? Instead of Lord of the Flies, he became Lord of the Mud by just by changing one letter. And since the worship of any idol or false god was really the worship of Satan for the Jews, the name Beelzebub became synonymous with Satan. But here's also an interesting point. Cambridge makes the note, and the ESV study Bible, when I was preparing this message, takes this definition more as what they believe is likely. They note that another derivation of Beelzebub is that it could mean Lord of the dwelling, or Lord of the houses. In other words, the master of the house of evil spirits. This meaning would be very appropriate with relation to the master of the house, as uh, they would later accuse Jesus of casting out demons through the master of the demons. Some scholars believe that Beelzebul, therefore, is a nearer approach to the Greek word in the text than Beelzebel. And until now, Matthew does not record the Jews calling Jesus Beelzebul, but in in Matthew 12.24, we will see it recorded. Listen to this. But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of the demons, that this fellow drives out demons. Now this is the height of blasphemy. The Pharisees 
in essence, by calling Jesus Beelzebul, they're calling Jesus Satan. And if they are willing to call and blaspheme the head of the house, the head of the church, Satan, just what do you think they'll do to Christians? That's the point of Christ. If they honor Jesus, then more than likely they'll honor other Christians. However, if they persecuted Jesus, then they will also persecute Christians. We should not expect anything less. Listen to this principle being taught in John 15, 20. Remember the word that I spoke to you. Jesus is speaking now. Remember the word that I gave you. No servant is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, well, if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. But if they kept my word, here's what it says in John, they will keep yours as well. This principle of the disciple not being greater than his teacher, but at least equal to his teacher, is a well-known Jewish and Greco-Roman principle. I know in American culture, a lot of times our students exceed us. But in those days, the highest you could get is equal to your teacher. And since a disciple is not above his teacher, and because a slave is never above his master. If they persecuted Jesus, then we should accept and expect persecution as well. Because if they call the master of the house a devil, if they call the master of the house Beelzebub, Satan, they will call us worse names. Christian, I hate to tell you this, but your Lord is calling you for a life of persecution and suffering. It might not be to the level of Matthew 10. I think many of us, we will never experience that type of persecution. But the road to heaven is through the gospel. But the gospel is a road marked with suffering. I want you to listen to 2 Timothy 3.12. Listen. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus might... Is that what it says? No, it doesn't. It says, will be persecuted. You will be persecuted for standing up for the words of Jesus. Christian, today the main theological principle is quite straightforward. Here it is. Because Jesus suffered, you must also prepare for suffering. Because Jesus suffered, you must also prepare for suffering. Like a soldier who knows he's about to go to war, prepare for it. Get your mind ready. Implicit within today's text and ex- explicit in next week's text will be the expectation that followers of Jesus proclaim the words of Christ. It is expected that you proclaim the teachings of Jesus. Christians will suffer for the words of Jesus because they will believe in, adhere to, and proclaim the words of Christ. I'll be honest with you. You could say you believe in Jesus all you want, but if you don't share the words of Jesus with people, the bottom line is you'll never be persecuted. I want to give you some further historical context regarding Christian suffering. 
And this is an excerpt from an article from Christianity.com. It's, it's a little lengthy, but I want you to listen to it because it'll give you a better idea of what happened in Matthew 10. And then if you understand what happened in Matthew 10, it'll allow you to appreciate the freedom that you have to worship, but also to give you a guide to understanding what we can expect if America grows more hostile. I mean, it's bad, but thank God that the worst that happens to us is a Christian baker is sued for refusing to make a cake for a certain type of wedding. I'm going to give you a sense of what happened back then. It was far worse for them. All sorts of accusations. But somewhat similar. Because even back then, they would accuse Christians falsely of being discriminatory and biased and hate mongers. Listen. The Christian church in its early centuries after Jesus endured wave after wave of persecution. All kinds of insults and charges were hurled at them a document written in the late 2nd century called the Octavius of Manichius, Felix, describes a debate between a Christian and a pagan at the Roman port of Ostia. And this document provides exceptional insight into how Christians were hated, what they were accused of, and how they responded. The first accusation against Christians in the earliest ages of Christianity was the charge of cannibalism. They charged Christians with being cannibals. Listen to Salasius the Pagan. You Christians are the worst breed ever to affect the world. You deserve every punishment you can get. Nobody likes you. It would be better if you and your Jesus had never been born. We hear that you're all cannibals. You eat the flesh of your children in your sacred meetings. Octavius the Christian responds, That story is probably based on reports that we shared together a meal of the body and blood of Christ. It is not human flesh we eat. It is bread and wine we consecrate to commemorate our Lord's death. It amazes me that you give credibility to these rumors of cannibalism. You know what we're like. Keep in mind that if you have a child and it is a girl but you wanted a boy, or if the child is deformed or if you simply don't want it, what is done? You leave the child outside exposed to die. And they used to do that rampantly during the early uh, ancient Roman days. Salasius responds, You know that it is far more merciful to let the baby die than to bring it up in a home where it is not wanted. Octavius responds, We do not expose our children. And you are well aware how so many of the little ones that have been left out to die have been rescued by Christians and given a home. So it's just the opposite of what you accuse us of, Salasius. We don't consume human life. We rather protect and defend it. 
Very good. Much like Christians today, uh, standing up against abortion and adopting, we haven't changed. While the world aborts at outstanding numbers, we save. Very similar. Here's the next charge. Gross immorality. All right. Granted, it was just a rumor, but also here that you meet in secret, even before sunrise, and the gross immorality we hear goes on in those places. It's repulsive, especially the incest. Octavius, if you came to one of our meetings, you would find that the lovemaking and intimacy you are so quick to imagine is of a totally different nature. We meet before sunrise because we are working people. We have jobs to go to. We do not always meet in secret, but we have no temples or synagogues. So we use somebody's home, which has enough room. We call one another brother and sister and pledge to love one another because that is what our Lord commanded us to do. And we greet one another and bless one another with a holy kiss Not out of lust, but out of genuine love and concern for one another. Come and you will see that we demand the highest standards of morality among all who join us. Next charge. Poor and lower class. Salacius, take a look at your gatherings. What are you made up of? Mostly women and gullible children. The majority are from the working classes, not well educated, mostly poor and even slaves. It makes me laugh when I think how poor you are. Barely enough to live on. If this God of yours is so great and so loving, why are so many of you so poor? Either He's not that loving and doesn't care about you, that you're poor, or He is not that great and unable to do anything about it. Some God, no wonder you're all regarded as fools. Octavius responds, If you had bothered to take the time to find out, you would know that there are many from the upper classes among our number, even some of Caesar's staff. And notable scholars who were once pagans have written in defense of our faith for the more educated to consider. But let's not quibble. Many of our number, most of our number, are poor. But what is more important is how we regard ourselves. We consider ourselves to be rich. We have that which is most valuable, the most precious gift which cannot be lost. And for your information, there are those of us who are wealthy. We do not despise wealth. We welcome it when it comes lawfully. But we do not lust after it. And when we get more wealth, we simply give more away. Wealth can be a great burden, you know. It weighs you down with many cares and concerns. Traveling light has its advantages. Some big advantages. Salacius says, Sorry, I haven't noticed any. I'll take the wealth instead any day. Octavius says, 
You know, Salacius, talking to you makes me realize why God doesn't automatically bless us with wealth. Because if He did, people like you would rush and become Christians and miss the whole point. So don't pity us. We have plenty. Not only for ourselves, but also for those in need. The ones that you walk right by. Remember, Christians like today were the ones who gave to the homeless. They're the ones who started Bowery missions and homeless food drives. Things haven't changed. Salacius, oh, aren't you so pure and good? And the charge now is self-righteousness. That's another thing that bothers me. You all think you are so righteous and better than the rest of us. You're all self-righteous and holy. Octavius, first you accuse us of cannibalism and orgies. Now you're offended because we seek to lead a holy life. Let me assure you, we do not consider ourselves to be holy. Every Lord's Day we have a service of communion. And it is the thanksgiving of uh, it is a service of thanksgiving. Thanksgiving because we are forgiven, not because we are holy. And if we are forgiven, then we shall seek to lead lives that are like Christ. Next charge is atheism. Atheism. Salacius, what concerns me is that is what you really are. This is the reason that you are hated across all the lands of this vast empire. Let's get to the real problem. You are atheists. Octavius. Huh? <laughs> yes, yes, yes. We are atheists. If you mean that we do not pray or believe in all of the gods we are expected to worship. But these are not gods. We worship the one true God the Lord over all. The next charge, cause of God's anger. Salacius, not without cause, I assure you. Why, can you not see what is so clear to everyone? Your lack of patriotism has caused us all grief and suffering. The gods have been good to Rome. They have given us great victories, good food, fertile land. That is why we must propitiate them and rid ourselves of you atheists. You are no more than criminals that must be dealt with as such. Octavius. Oh yes, we've heard that one before too many times. As one of our fathers wrote, If the Tiber overflows its walls, if the Nile does not rise to the fields, if the sky doesn't move or the earth does... If there is a famine, if there is a plague, the cry at once is, the Christians to the lion. For everything that happened, for every malady that occurred in the empire, Christians were blamed. Whenever something went wrong, they were blamed. They were reviled and persecuted. I read somewhere that later on, at the time of Augustine, Christians were blamed for the fall of the Roman Empire. 
Standing up for the words of Christ in an ungodly culture is a very difficult thing to do. Very difficult. Another thing I want to point out is that during the days of the Greco-Roman period, divorce and remarriage was done with great ease. They allowed women to divorce as well. The Jews didn't, but Greco-Roman culture did. And Herodias, the wife of Philip, did so and married Herod. That's why John lost his head. That kind of behavior was very common as it is now. I don't know what the divorce rates were back then. It would be fascinating if we, anyone could even find out. But I wouldn't be surprised if the divorce rates were too different from today. As people get further away from Christ, divorce rates will rise and we will see all sorts of strange type of marriages. Quote, unquote. Yet Christians were the ones to stand against the remarriage culture of their day. In a very early Christian writing known as the Shepherd of Hermas, which, by the way, many early Christians almost valued this as much as they did the Bible. Here's what it says. Listen to what it says. Shepherd of Hermas. This is AD 80. Just to give you a sense of what Christians were saying. What then shall the husband do if the wife continue in this disposition of adultery? Let him divorce her and let the husband remain single. But if he divorce his wife and marry another, he too commits adultery. Certainly goes against Calvin's later teaching or the teaching that is prevalent in our day and age today. Christians often teach that if someone commits divorce, uh, I'm sorry, if a spouse commits adultery, then the innocent party is free to divorce and remarry, but that is not the teaching of Jesus, and that was not the teaching of early Christians as they read the teachings of Jesus for many centuries. The commands of Jesus Christ are so clear. Now, we see here that Christians from a very early time didn't even allow the victim of adultery to remarry after divorce. And why is that? Because of Jesus' words in Luke 16, 18. Now, let's go look at what Jesus said. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband doesn't give a reason here. Commits adultery. So if a woman is divorced from her husband because she was an adulteress, the Bible says if you marry her, because she's divorced, you commit adultery. The commands of Christ are so clear that they don't even really need an explanation. Are you going to really tell me that if a woman is divorced because of her adultery, then you can remarry her? That makes no sense whatsoever. And yet that's what proponents of the adultery exception proclaim. This, of course, I mean, this is, of course, a very difficult teaching to teach. There are so many divorces occurring um, in our society, in the military, everywhere. And there is, of course, an easier way to live life. 
You know how you could live life? You could call yourself a Christian and rid persecution by simply getting rid of all of Jesus' difficult commands. With divorce rates at near 50% in America, it would be far easier for you to live as a Christian in America if you simply got rid of Jesus' teaching regarding divorce and remarriage. People will accept you with greater and or greater openness and friendliness. Church ministry would be larger and easier, and you would be seen as an open-minded person. I'm not lying about this. Sadly, this is precisely the road that many church leaders have taken. Although John the Baptist lost his head for telling Herod to break up his remarriage, many evangelical pastors have chosen instead to ignore the multiple teachings of Christ in the Gospels, and instead, they have instructed remarried couples to stay together in what God clearly views as adultery. The Roman Catholic Church is now also undergoing a crisis regarding this very same issue. Did you know that? Although the Roman Catholic Church is a false church due to its wrong stance against justification solely through faith in the gospel, they have been right, however, on the following aspect of divorce and remarriage. This is the official catechism of the Catholic Church. If you're a Catholic, this is what you obey. Okay? Here's what it says. Today, there are numerous Catholics in many countries who have recourse, in other words, um, access to, have gone to, uh, civil divorce, and contract new civil unions, meaning uh, the government has allowed them to. In fidelity to the words of Jesus Christ, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her, and if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Now, he, they're quoting Jesus here. Because of these words, listen to what it says, the church maintains that the new union cannot be recognized as valid if the first marriage was. If the divorced are remarried civilly, meaning you go before a judge and they remarry you, they find themselves in a situation that is objectively that in a situation that objectively contravenes God's law. Consequently, they cannot receive Eucharistic communion as long as this situation persists. We as Protestants ought to have the same position. Not because the Catholic Church says so, but because following Jesus' words would also lead to the same conclusion. This has been the church's position for over 2,000 years. Now in July 1st, so what, eight days ago, um, there was an article entitled Pope Shakes Up Vatican by Replacing Conservative Doctrinal Chief. Ooh. Did you guys hear about this? A reporter wrote, a brief Vatican statement said Cardinal Gerhard Ludwig Müller's five-year mandate as the head of the Congregation for the Doctrine of Faith, a department charged with defending Catholic doctrine, 
would not be renewed. End quote. Now, why did Pope Francis, everybody loves Pope Francis. He's very popular right now. Why did Pope Francis not renew Mueller's mandate? Why did he get rid of his top doctrinal man? Listen to the reason from this excerpt, same article. It's all over the news this past week. Mueller has criticized parts of a 2016 papal treatise called Amoris Laetitia, The Joy of Love, a cornerstone document of Francis's attempt to make the 1.2 billion member Catholic Church more inclusive and less condemning. In it, Francis called for a church that is less strict and more compassionate toward any imperfect members such as those who are divorced and remarried, saying no one can be condemned forever. Conservatives have concentrated their criticism on the document's opening to Catholics who are divorced and remarried in civil ceremonies without getting church annulments. Under church law, they cannot receive communion unless they abstain from sex with their new partner because their first marriage is still valid in the eyes of the church and therefore they are seen to be living in an adulterous state of sin. In the document, the Pope sided with the progressives who had proposed an internal forum in which a priest or bishop decide jointly with the individual on a case-by-case basis if he or she can be fully reintegrated and receive communion. Since his election in 2013, Francis has given hope to progressives who want him to forge ahead with his vision for a more welcoming church that concentrates on mercy rather than the strict enforcement of rigid rules they see as antiquated. That's the article. Now again, the Roman Catholic Church is a false church because it has a false gospel. Yet that last sentence is the reason behind my sharing of this article. The antiquated, rigid rules that the media and progressive Catholics are referring to are the commands of Christ. Those are Jesus' words. Jesus was the one who prohibited remarriage after divorce by labeling it as adultery. It is the church's job to enforce such commands because because as they do so, they preserve the purity of the body of Christ and exalt the kingship of Jesus. But my point is simple. If they so malign the words of Christ, will they not malign you when you begin urging others to obey Christ's commands? You shall be called Beelzebub. The more I study church history, the more I am amazed how easy it is for the church to understand the plain words of Jesus for so long. And I begin to wonder why it's so difficult for so many today to see the plain truth. This past year, we have endured so much suffering for the words of Christ. 
In one very real sense, I am about to undergo deployments, harsh climates, and all the rigors of military and military training because of the doctrine of divorce and remarriage. In a very real sense, that's me. Yet I am willing to suffer for Christ because I am reminded of the fact that others have lost far more for the words of Jesus than I have. I'm reminded of today's text. A disciple is not above his teacher nor a slave above his master. If the, if the popular media labels Jesus' words as strict, condemning, antiquated, if that's what they call Jesus, how much more will they condemn me, a mere slave of Christ? If they hate the words of Christ, then they will hate me when I try to proclaim His words. We found that out firsthand. To those of you who remain, I urge you to stand firm in the truth. Yes, you will be seen as antiquated, rigid, strict, and unmerciful. Those are the words used by, I think it was Reuters, the, the newspaper. But the truth is, mercy and love are best shown when a neighbor lovingly speaks truth to his neighbor in order to turn him from destruction. That's what love is. You'll be hated for it, but that's what true love is. I urge you to be people of Malachi 2.6. Here's what it says. True instruction was in his mouth, and unrighteousness was not found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many back from iniquity. What a verse. As I close this message, Lord willing, one of my final messages here at Mustard Seed Church, I want to leave you with a word of comfort and encouragement. Yes, Jesus promises suffering for those who stand up for his words. Yes, we've seen the truth of that by our own experiences as a church. But did you know that for those of you who suffer for Jesus, you will experience a level of comfort from God that is quite extraordinary. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians 1.5. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. Hallelujah. It is through that comfort, if you read the very next verse, we are then able to comfort everyone in every type of affliction. I don't want you to be bitter, angry people. I want the world accusing you to be bitter, angry people. But as they accuse, I want you to comfort and be a presence of peace and love. We will always be maligned. That's our history as Christians. They will say all sorts of things about you. They've said all sorts of things about me. I've been called all sorts of names. 
And I'll be honest with you, I, I'll be lying if I say that it never affects me. It does at various points to various degrees. But in a world full of pain and suffering, Christians who stand for Christ have a treasury of comfort wherewith we can comfort the world, even a world that hates us just as they hated our Master. Let's pray.